This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. St. Cyprian of Carthage in the third century expressed well the sentiments of the early church toward the Our Father. He wrote, How great, dearest brothers, are the mysteries of the Lord's Prayer. How many, how magnificent, gathered together in a few words, yet abundant in spiritual power. Already in the first century, the Didache was advising Christians to pray the Our Father daily. And we find the first reference to the liturgical recitation of the prayer in the fourth century in the mystagogical catechesis of Cyril of Jerusalem. Some churches in the early centuries even reserved these sacred words to the baptized, who alone could dare to call God Father. The entire church, therefore, in her formative years, responded to Christ's command to pray like this. In this paper, I will examine some of the church fathers' interpretations of the first so-called we petition, give us this daily our daily bread. I'll begin by reviewing some of the textual problems in the versions of both Matthew and Luke, followed by an overview of six patristic interpretations, paying special attention to the significance of bread and really what is it for us and what does it do for us. The approaches of the fathers to this petition demonstrate the desire to confront genuine textual problems while also drawing forth pastoral and spiritual insights. So first, just a few things about the textual features in this petition. I have a handout, at least with some, some of that. Before presenting the readings of the fathers, it is helpful to review some of the features of the Matthean and Lucan versions. Though the fathers generally turned to the Matthean version as the basis for interpretation, they were not unaware of the differences between the two versions and especially in the case of origin, they even comment on them. So if you look at the handout, the Matthean and Lucan versions are as follows. Give us this day, and I'm not even going to try to translate epiousios yet, but give us this day our epiousion bread, or give us each day our epiousion bread. The following features are worth noting. First, both Greek verbs for give are in the imperative mood, but they differ in tense. Matthew has a Greek aorist imperative, which indicates a complete and one-time action. Give us in this moment our bread, or give us once and for all our bread. Luke, however, has a present imperative, thereby suggesting a continuing action. Give us bread regularly, repeatedly. Second, Matthew's version contains the word semeron, which is generally translated as perhaps today or this day. So we are told, therefore, to pray that the fulfillment of this petition come now on this day. Luke, however, uses the expression ta kaf hemeron, which means daily or each day. Luke's version asks for bread to be stilled regularly, every day. 
these expressions fit the respective verb tenses in the petitions. Matthew calls for a one-time action today while Luke seeks the repetition of the gift daily. Finally, the word epiousios, common to both prayers, continues to puzzle even modern scholars. Origin of Alexandria, obviously a, a native speaker, noted that the word, quote, is not employed by any of the Greek writers, nor by philosophers, nor by individuals in common usage, but seems to have been formed by the evangelists. At least Matthew and Luke concur in employing the term in an identical manner, at least. Modern scholars have proposed a variety of etymologies and translations, many of which the fathers of the church had already suggested. Among the most prominent interpretations one finds, uh, the word comes from epienai, to come, and therefore expresses the desire for the bread to come, the coming age, perhaps. Another one would be the word is a combination of epi for and usia, existence or livelihood or sustenance, and therefore calls for the bread necessary for our existence. Another possibility, it is an abbreviated form of epitain usan hemaran, uh, meaning the bread for today. And then one, uh, one other interpretation that we will look at coming up, of course, is that of super substantial, over and above substance. We'll be, this will be considered in another section in the paper. The Greek fathers, of course, noticed the problems presented in these original texts, yet the Latin fathers did demonstrate an awareness of the nuances in the Greek, especially, of course, Jerome in his commentary on Matthew. In the next section, I will examine how first a selection of Greek fathers and then a selection of Latin fathers commented on this meaning of bread in the petition and even how they grapple with this word, epiousios. First, three Greek fathers. I'll examine three Greek-speaking commentators on the Our Father, origin of Alexandria, lived approximately 184 to 253, Gregory of Nyssa, 335 to 395, and Maximus the Confessor, 580 to 662. Origen's commentary on the Our Father appears in his De Oratione on Prayer, composed around 233. In this work dedicated to his friends Ambrose and Tatiana, he defines prayer, examines different kinds of prayer, and includes a discussion of the Our Father as the paradigmatic prayer for Christians. His emphasis throughout the commentary is on the unifying power of the prayer in the way it teaches us what to pray for and what not to pray for. Uh, that is, and he really emphasized this, not to pray for material things. Thus, the prayer purifies the mind and directs it toward the more unifying and spiritual realities as demonstrated by the very concise structure of the prayer itself. It's not wordy. And so he writes, for there is no unity in material or in bodies. For every supposed unity has lost its unity 
by being split up and disintegrated and divided into many. For the good is one, but the shameful are many. Truth is one, but falsehoods are many. So he says, Christians formed by the Lord's prayer cease to be babblers, those whose verbosity in prayer complicates and divides the soul. And instead, they learn to seek the simple, the unifying, and the spiritual. Origen applies this theme of spiritual union to the reading of Give Us This Day Our Epiusian Bread. He begins by excluding any material expressions of bread. He writes, since some assume that we are being charged to pray for corporeal bread, we should set forth the truth concerning the Epiusian bread in order to refute their false opinions. For the bread which is assimilated to our flesh is not heavenly, nor is it asking for anything great. This petition cannot therefore be a request for material food <clears throat> that divides the soul, but rather it asks for spiritual nourishment that unites one to God. Well then, what is the spiritual meaning of this bread? Origen develops his position as follows. First, he connects this petition to the bread of life discourse in the Gospel of John. My Father gives you the true bread from heaven. The bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. This heavenly bread, Origen concludes, must give nourishment, therefore, to true humanity, he writes, which is made in the image of God, and so whoever is nourished grows into the likeness of the Creator. Thus, this food must feed the highest faculties of man that constitute the divine image that is for origin. It feeds the soul through reason, logos, and it feeds the mind through wisdom. The bread from heaven, then the bread of reason, wisdom, and truth feeds this true humanity forming man in the divine likeness. Second, Origen goes on to argue that the bread is therefore best identified with Christ himself, the Logos in flesh. The petition therefore calls for one to receive the Logos incarnate according to one's mode of reception, that is, according to the spiritual maturity of the recipient. Third, Origen explores the possible meanings of the word epiousios, to specify further how we have access to the heavenly spiritual bread, which is Christ. Origen's explanations for this peculiar word stand out for their linguistic and philosophical depth. After briefly reviewing the Platonic and Aristotelian understandings of the concept of usia, essence, Origen concludes that this epiousion bread must be the bread that feeds our essence, that is, that which fulfills the human, as he said earlier. He writes, the epiousios bread, therefore, is that which corresponds most closely to the rational nature and is related to its essence, bringing about health and well-being and strength in the soul. And since the word of God is immortal, communicating its own immortality to anyone who eats it. 
Origen concludes that this bread must be the word of God and the divine precepts as conveyed through the scriptures. Origen does spend some time considering other meanings of epiousios, especially the eschatological implications of a bread that is to come. But in the end, he understands epiousion bread to be the logos and wisdom of God that is the nourishment for our essence or being. Again, he doesn't have the Eucharist in mind, but rather the Logos as conveyed through the scriptures and the very life of Christ, the Logos in the flesh. Contemplation of the word Christ forms one in the divine image. He writes, we should pray to be counted worthy of this bread and to be nourished by the word who is with God in the beginning and so in this way to be made divine. Gregory of Nyssa, known primarily as a mystic and a highly speculative thinker among the Cappadocians, composed a series of homilies on the Lord's Prayer around 375 that addressed the need for practical advice in Christian living. Uh, he emphasizes the need for prayer and the way that prayer should inform all aspects of daily life. He writes, if word is preceded by prayer, sin will find, excuse me, work is preceded by prayer, sin will find no entrance into the soul. For when the consciousness of God is firmly established in the heart, the devices of the devil remain sterile, and matters of dispute will always be settled in justice. He encourages his congregation to make prayer part of their daily life. He writes, prayer is conversion, a con me, conversation, homilia, with God, and contemplation of the invisible. It satisfies our yearnings and makes us equal to the angels, is angelos. Through it, good prospers, evil is destroyed, and sinners will be converted. The Lord's prayer, above all, forms us as Christians walking in the way of Christ, he writes, for this is the force of his words, that we should learn by them not to pronounce certain sounds and syllables, but the meaning of the ascent to God, which is accomplished through a sublime way of life. Regarding this specific petition for bread, he focuses on one's separation from material things and dedication to God. Unlike Origen, he begins his argument for a life of simplicity by perhaps taking the easiest interpretation of bread. It's bread. <laughs> However, bread itself points to the basic necessities of life. Right? He says, men, let yourselves no longer be distracted by desiring vanities Stop heaping toil upon toil for yourselves. The needs of your nature are but few. You owe food to your flesh, a trivial thing and easily procured, if you content yourself with what is necessary. Christ, therefore, tells us to ask only for those things which we truly need for sustenance, and in turn, to abandon all superfluous possessions. Cling to what is necessary, 
Let your care for your livelihood end when you have supplied your needs by what you can easily obtain. While individual contentment with the essentials liberates one from temptations and opens the space for a greater commitment to God, it also, Gregory suggests, leads to a more just society. When we seek to acquire more than our due, we at the same time deprive others of their needs. Greedy acquisition leads to injustice. It is a form of robbery and the pastime of thieves. Thus, Gregory advises, you are the master of your prayer. If abundance does not come from another's property and is not the result of another's tears, if no one is hungry or distressed because you are fully satisfied, for the bread of God is above all the fruit of justice, the ear, the corn of peace, pure and without any admixture of the seed of tares. Gregory drives this principle of simplicity home by exploring the meaning of this day. The word Samaron means entrusting to God all present and future needs. He writes, by the very fact that he gives you the commandment for today, he forbids you to be solicitous for the morrow. He says to you, as it were, he who gives you the day will give you also the things necessary for the day. The petition, therefore, temporarily orients us by teaching us to distinguish the needs of the moment from the deeper hope in divine promises. Bread is for our use today, he writes. The kingdom belongs to the beatitude for which we hope. By bread, he means all our bodily requirements. If we ask for this, the man who prays will clearly understand that he is occupied with something transitory. But if we ask for something of the good things of the soul, it will be clear that the petition concerns everlasting realities. Unquote. I just note at the end of these points on Gregory that he doesn't make any connection between the petition and the bread of life discourse, nor does he show any real concern about epiousios, nor does he suggest any clear link to the Eucharist, which I think given the nature of, uh, of his other works as a speculative thinker is maybe a little surprising, but maybe not, and that these homilies are directed toward a particular audience and of uh, kind of forming them in their daily lives. He directs his words toward an audience, yes, that requires practical advice regarding the imitation of God and the simplicity of life and the growth in virtue. Finally, for the Greek fathers, just briefly, Maximus the Confessor. Maximus the Confessor, whose commentary dates around 636, echoes many of the themes found in the homilies of Gregory of Nyssa regarding the first we petition. He teaches the limiting of our desires to the necessities of life. He writes, let us prove that we eat to live and let us not be convicted of living to eat. For one is clearly proper to rational nature and the other to a nature without reason. The words this day or the expression this day, he concludes, implies remaining content with one's circumstances and it directs one's gaze toward the fulfillment of the divine promises in the future. 
But Maximus also situates this petition within the understanding or his understanding of the overall scope of the Lord's Prayer. That is deification, assimilation to God. In fact, the prayer itself teaches all the elements which of the comp- comprise divine assimilation, deification. He writes, these things are adoption and grace, equality of honor with the angels, participation in eternal life, the restoration of nature inclining toward itself to a tranquil state, the abolition of the law of sin, the overthrowing of the tyranny of evil, which has dominated us by trickery. In this context, the petition for bread asks God to grant the heavenly food that was ours even prior to the fall, that is, the restoration of our nature in its reception of the heavenly bread, the divine logos. Echoing origin, Maximus teaches that even now, each one may receive this epiusion bread according to his disposition. For the bread of life out of his love for men gives himself to all who ask him, but not in the same manner to everyone. To those who have done great works, he gives himself more fully. To those who have done smaller ones, less. To each then according to his spiritual dignity, enabling him to receive it. So Maximus's commentary, though briefer than Origen's or Gregory's, does contribute the idea that this, the Logos nourished man even before the fall, and that the petition for bread, in part, seeks a restoration of our prelapsarian state in which, in which we might receive the Logos fully once again. The bread of life that we desire is the essential food of the Logos who gives adoption by grace and equality with the angels. Now I'll switch to three Latin fathers. I will briefly consider the interpretations of Cyprian of Carthage from 210 to 258, uh, Jerome 347 to 420, and Augustine 354 to 430. Cyprian's commentary on the Lord's Prayer, composed around 251 to 52, addresses the tragedy of a divided church in the aftermath of persecution. He certainly knew the earlier commentary of his fellow uh, Tertullian, and his version of the prayer does differ slightly from the Matthean, no, not in the context we need to consider here. Uh, Cyprian encourages his audience to embrace the Our Father because they are the very word. It is the very words of Christ. He says, "Therefore, let us pray, dearest brothers, just as God the Master has taught us, imploring God in His own words, sending up to His ears the prayer of Christ." is a friendly and familiar manner of praying. When we make our prayer, let the Father recognize the words of his own Son. One must recite these words with great attention and humility, since one need only remember the story of the publican and the tax collector. I think we all remember that today. Uh, To know that one's disposition is visible to the eyes of God. In his treatment of the bread petition, rendered in his translation as Panem Nostrum Quotidianum, Da Nobis Hodie, Cyprian focuses on the first word, our. 
given that he is addressing uh, this period of division, uh, this should not be surprising. He correlates this petition for our daily bread with the very opening of the prayer, Our Father, to teach the unity forged by both the prayer and the reception of the bread. He writes, For Christ is the bread of life, and thus he is not the bread of anybody but ourselves. And in the same way that we say, Our Father, since he is the Father of those who have knowledge and belief, so we refer to our bread, since Christ is the bread of those who participate in his body. In a church that had become we versus them in this aftermath of persecution, the hour of the prayer calls for a more authentic union in Christ. He continues the theme by explicitly linking the, participation, the, the petition for bread to the celebration of the Eucharist. The prayer, in fact, asks God for the daily reception of the Eucharist as the food of salvation and the basis for the full participation in the body of Christ. Since only sin prevents one from sharing in the celebration of the Eucharist or the reception of the Eucharist, this petition also should move one to avoid transgressions and remain always within the body. He writes, Consequently, we ask that we be given our bread, that is Christ, daily, so that we may remain in Christ and live through his sanctification and fall not away from his body. Reception of the Eucharist, the sharing of our bread, therefore serves as the basis of the communion in the life of the church. Cyprian concludes this section of his commentary by invoking a theme that we have already seen in the Greek fathers, namely the limiting of one's desires to the essentials. Christ teaches us that if we seek perfection, we must give up all we have to the poor and seek treasure in heaven. Bread, therefore, also symbolizes the essentials of life, and by asking for it daily, we demonstrate trust in divine providence. He writes, he promises to provide everything for those who seek the kingdom and the righteousness of God. For since all things are God's, the one who has God will lack nothing if he is not lacking in God. In Cyprian's commentary, we see not only the explicit influence of the bread of life discourse, but we also have the direct link between the bread of the petition and the reception of the Eucharist. The bread of life is the nourishment of union in the body of Christ. Jerome's commentary on the Our Father appears within his commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, written around 398, and it exhibits clear dependence on the work of Origen. Nonetheless, he does offer some striking original insights gleaned from his knowledge of Greek and Hebrew sources. His commentary begins by justifying the petitionary structure of the prayer, since many philosophers, he says, argues that God already knows our needs and therefore to express our desires is superfluous. Jerome firmly responds that, quote, we are not relators, narratores, but beggars, rogatores, our requests in the prayer are not empty ramblings, but rather an act of homage 
through a demonstration of fidelity and trust and a prayer for divine mercy. In short, the Our Father serves to form us in this faith and trust in God. In his commentary on the Panem Supersubstantiale, supersubstantial bread, Jerome, following Origen, draws upon the connection, a connection between the unknown word here, epiousios, and a related word that he finds in the Greek Old Testament, pereousios, which can be translated as special or particular. Uh, it is found in Exodus 19.5, you shall be my pereousios, particular or special people. He combines this with further observations based on passages from the no longer extant Gospel of the Hebrews, for which we only have fragments in the works of Origen, Didymus, Didymus the Blind, Jerome, and others. It's um, this extended quote, so I have a copy of it on the handout there. Let's read this and his transliterated Hebrew. We have therefore carefully examined the Hebrew and wherever they had used pereousios in the Greek Old Testament, we found sogola, which Symmachus translated as exiratos, that is, special or surpassing, although it is interpreted in one place as extraordinary. When, therefore, we ask God to give us extraordinary or special bread, so he sees the words as related, we ask for him who said, I am the bread which descended from heaven. In the gospel, which is called according to the Hebrews, I found mar applied to the supersubstantial bread, which means tomorrow. It therefore has this sense, our tomorrow, that is future bread, give us today. So according to Jerome, this extraordinary or surpassing or supersubstantial bread is in the light of the bread of, in the light of the bread of life discourse, Christ himself. Yet at the same time, it is the bread for the morrow, perhaps suggesting the eschatological, the coming of Christ. Jerome's delving into the possible linguistic origins of the word epiusos, therefore point to the bread, in his words, that surpass all creatures. The, uh, the bread which is humbled for our true fulfillment in the person of Christ himself. Finally, Augustine uh, provides commentary on the Our Father in a number of writings, particular in On the Sermon on the Mount uh, from 393, uh, the letter uh, 130 to Proban 412, and especially sermons 56 to 59 composed between 410 and 415. Here, I'm just going to focus on his commentary from uh, Sermon on the Mount uh, since it was the young priest Augustine's first foray into commenting on the New Testament and therefore provides a glimpse of his remarkable mind as it grapples with new pastoral duties and challenges. And basically the themes that he brings out there will appear again with more or less emphasis in the other commentaries that we find in the future. The Our Father writes Augustine as a prayer forms us for a disposition grounded in fundamental truths. He writes, 
Through the medium of words, our Lord has taught us those very truths so that when those words are committed to memory, we may be mindful of those truths while we are engaged in prayer. Christ's teachings cleanse the inner eye and direct the heart toward what we truly require. He writes, through prayer, it is brought about that the heart is turned toward him who is always ready to give, provided that we are ready to accept whatever he may give. The prayer, therefore, both forms our desires, desires that too often become confused with temporal pleasures, and in turn forms our receptivity before God. In his exposition on the first we position, Augustine proposes, in fact, three acceptable interpretations, though he indicates his clear preference. First, the petition for bread may teach us to limit our desires to the basic necessities of life. We've heard this before. Yet Augustine notes that though this interpretation has merit, nonetheless, it appears to contradict the Lord's own command. Right? He says, indeed, someone may be disturbed by the thought that we ought to pray for the necessities of this life, such as food and clothing, because the Lord himself says, be not solicitous about what you shall eat and what you shall put on. So sure, that's an acceptable interpretation, but seems to conflict with what Christ says. Second, the prayer may voice the desire for the daily reception of the Eucharist, the body of Christ. Again, while Augustine generally approves of this interpretation, he says it faces opposition from the practice of the Eastern churches who do not receive the Eucharist daily as those in the West do. So Augustine is loath to imply that these Christians are transgressing a command of Christ. Furthermore, he says another problem, if the bread is the Eucharist, would this not mean that once having received our daily, our daily gift of the consecrated bread, we could not pray the Our Father for the rest of the day, right? I mean, we all went to Mass this morning, we received our daily bread, that's it. We have to edit the rosary this afternoon, kind of pull the Our Father out, and then we can pick it up again tomorrow. There's, there's a logic to this, there is. In the end, Augustine voices his preference for a third approach to the petition. He writes, it remains for us, therefore, to understand the daily bread as spiritual bread. That is today to say, we are to understand it as the divine precepts on which we ought to meditate every day and which we ought to perform daily. For it is of these precepts that the Lord says, labor for the food that is not destroyed. We have need of this food until we enter eternity, Augustine writes, when food will no longer be daily, but rather a never-ending spiritual nourishment for true life. In this life, he says, we must chew on this food. That is, we must meditate on it and put it into practice. While in the next life, our spiritual sustenance will be drink, since we will no longer need to break it down in order to receive it into ourselves. This petition, therefore, corresponds to uh, the beatitude of those who hunger and thirst for justice, he writes, 
so that we may be supported and sustained and that we may thus be able to arrive at that most copious abundance. In later works on the Lord's Prayer, Augustine will embrace these three interpretations, again, without, sometimes without even voicing a particular preference. The bread is our daily sustenance or the Eucharist or the precepts or word of God. While we certainly see these interpretations in the early work on the Sermon on the Mount, he clearly prefers the interpretation of spiritual food as the scriptures and uh, divine precepts. So to conclude, uh, the small sample of early commentaries reviewed in this paper reflects the general themes that one may discover in many other fathers from the early centuries, such as those found in the works of Tertullian or Cyril of Jerusalem of Agris Ponticus, the anonymous master of the Latin rule, Theodore Mopsuestia or Peter Chrysologus. I would highlight then these points to note. First of all, uh, these fathers, the fathers reviewed here always remained open to multiple interpretations in some way, though each one does clearly come down on a clear preference. Second, most accepted the interpretation of bread as a sign for the basic necessities of life. So what it's calling us to is separation from superfluous goods and a dedication to things of the spirit. Third, most demonstrate support for the interpretation of the bread as Christ himself, uh, particularly through a link with the bread of life discourse. But they often differ, or they do differ uh, precisely on what this means. Cyprian, and with some hesitation, for example, Augustine point to the daily reception of the Eucharist, while Origen, Jerome, and certainly more enthusiastically Augustine point to the divine precepts as conveyed through the scriptures. Finally, uh, of these fathers, uh, only Origen and Jerome give any major attention to the word epiousios. Uh, they allowed for various interpretations of the word, though they generally understood it to be indicating the spiritual nature of the bread that nourishes man in his highest essence, highest faculties of wisdom and reason, that which unites man with God. In general, the fathers offer us a series of learned and provocative reflections that may aid us in the interpretation of Christ's word and our appropriation of these words in daily life. To conclude with Cyprian again, how magnificent gathered together in a few words, how abundant in power. Thank you. Maybe I'm not going to too, but to connect wisdom and, and bread, eating, because usually, you know, maybe other cultures appreciate or have sort of more ritualistic understanding of eating, but, you know, I'm not going to get smarter by eating this pizza. But if you think, if you think of so obviously the Eucharist, and then you think wisdom at center table. I wonder if there's any, would you have any comment about this particular connection, eating and wisdom, uh, so in the Father's and, and with respect to this petition of the Lord's Prayer? In, 
certainly it's it's origin who brings out that aspect of it for uh, the reception of the epiousios bread. And again, his emphasis there, as I said, is is looking at uh, what what for him are the highest faculties of the human person, or and so he sees that in reason and wisdom. Uh, from there, because it is Christ himself, right? Uh, he certainly says, connects it to, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so it is the reception of the truth. But he doesn't say a lot about exactly how it's, I mean, in terms of a metaphor of bread and wisdom, simply other than what its connection is with the epiousios there. I think for him, that's what points to it. Thank you, Father, for your uh, talk. This is uh, really a lot to, uh, to contemplate, and that's really more of a comment, I guess, that, as we know, Father Ku uh, has drilled into us that uh, one of the roles of speculative theology is at least contemplation. And so this um, gives us a lot of food, and I appreciate the last com- the last uh, conclusion that the, um, you know, the fathers weren't locked into one interpretation. So we don't need to be locked into one interpretation either, you know, and that um, knowing, but knowing what the fathers thought about this and, and their being so, you know, uh, much closer to the roots of the, of the gospel tradition than we certainly offer a lot for us to contemplate in, a, in this very simple prayer that we pray so many times every day, especially those in religious life who, you know, pray the office, pray the rosary, um, so I really, really just want to um, express my appreciation for all the different uh, um, opportunities we have and uh, different ways we can contemplate this uh, this uh, particular part of the prayer. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Dr. Gavin. Sorry, we're here again. Um, referring to Augustine, um, doesn't he also at some point uh, make a sort of logical argument for the meaning of daily bread or special bread, that it's simply the an example of using the particular to indicate the general. Mm-hmm. So the daily bread would be in the sense of, you know, a, a uh, an example to indicate the more broad, and just that that sort of interpretation. And thank you again, wonderful overview of all the fathers. No, I th- absolutely. I mean, I think when he sees that. I think we can go back to one of the interpretations that I, he brings forth in the commentary I was working with, uh, the, the kind of basic necessities, are kind, of, kind of general things that we need, but not to go beyond that. I mean, we're, we're, so it's an act of trust and faith, once again, in God's providence, but uh, kind of a turning from the self as the source for all that one needs. So, yes, yeah, so it can be kind of this general, yes, each day I express this greater dependence on God and openness to receive with uh, what God gives. If I think that's what you, yeah. Thank you, Father, for a marvelous talk. Could you comment on, um, is there, are there connections or should there, should we see connections Did the church fathers make connections with the, um, the manna uh, and that, you know, bring out that, that theme and so far. I mean, I, it, I immediately thought of it when you were speaking about mm-hmm. um, the um, gospel according to the Hebrews uh, mm. quotation about the bread for tomorrow and the mm-hmm. that expectation. Any any are there connections there? Anything further to be said? In terms of limiting himself to the man yeah, the manner then just yeah, 
they they will mention the man, but I don't I don't see like a regular development of that idea directly from. I mean, they will talk about it in the terms of the man on the desert, but not in the sense of kind of, yeah, as regularly as a kind of limiting in that way. Uh, you would expect it perhaps even more, but. Uh, it's interesting with the, I mean, we don't have much from the gospel according to the Hebrews, as I said. Uh, there is, however, one other reference in Jerome um, from uh, his uh, uh, lives of uh, illustrious men. He, in the first one, he, taught, he quotes it there. And uh, he says that according to the gospel of the Hebrews, uh, James refused to eat bread uh, until he met the risen Lord. And then... Uh, Christ appears when he meets, he meets the risen Lord. Uh, Christ tells him to bring a table and bread and then tells him that now you may ask for your daily bread. Uh, so th he has that other connection there, that, but there's nothing that he quotes from that particular writing or elsewhere about the manna specifically connection, but he does bring that up. Yeah. Yes, thank you, Father. Um, so my question is along the line of Gregory of Nyssa's understanding, I think, of the, the bread as bread. Um, and, uh, yeah, just asking for the necessities of this life. Um, and in the understanding that right, everything, everything we ask for um, from God, like with the right heart, it will be granted to us. Like that notion of prayer um, asking for, you know, like, a material good um, that, you know, like, people people starve, right? Like, people don't receive this all of the time. Um, so how can we, like, how, how can we uh, synthesize those two realities if we are, you know, called to ask for material things? So uh, the problem of... of Asking for material things, or just so I can understand that. Yeah, yeah. I think just just wondering on that interpretation if it is if it is very literally you know, bread, mm. um, and um, we mm. are you know yeah, elsewhere in in the new in mm -hmm. the New Testament like we're we're told that we receive what we ask for in prayer, you know, in the right mm. heart in these things. Um, so how does I guess yeah? How does that mesh with asking for something that? Well, I think he he's well. He says that in making that petition, we're actually forming this disposition, right? Uh, that we will seek first and foremost only those things that I mean sustain us, right? So we do need certain things, you're right, or else we will starve and so on. So it creates a uh, interior disposition not to seek the superfluous and uh, not to seek to go beyond. Uh, that which we need. And so he sees that as for the good of the person, but as I mentioned, he also sees it as the good of society itself, uh, the injustice of acquiring more than what we need. So I guess the prayer requires an interior disposition, but also forms it, I guess we could say, uh, to have that heart, I think, as he said, uh, that recognizes what are the spiritual goods and what are the material things that we actually need. Yeah. Thank you, Father Brian's uh, paper. I just wanted to ask whether there are significant differences in the ways the various fathers 
interpret basic necessities? Mm -hmm. uh, is it to be understood to be restricted in some cases simply to natural needs? Mm -hmm. Or could we make a case, do any of the fathers make the case, that the Eucharist itself is a basic necessity of life? Well, certainly what we see, it's, it's interesting when you look at them, the Western fathers, the Latin speakers, are the ones who actually bring out the importance of reception of the Eucharist, whereas the Greek ones do not. And again, maybe Augustine gives us the real reason for that, right, uh, in terms of practices. But uh, certainly for them, the regular reception of the Eucharist is a necessity that we pray for. Uh, Augustine has some problems with it, but... Cyprian does, Tertullian brings it up, uh, Peter Chrysogus has a wonderful image in which he basically takes you through the entire baking process of bread and correlates it with the life of Christ. He is placed in the uh, womb of the Virgin, he is fermented there, he is put into the oven of the tomb, uh, he is and fully baked on the cross. I mean, he brings us out that uh, the formation of the bread. So the importance of the daily reception certainly is emphasized there. So you're right. I mean, sometimes I think especially, you know, with the Greek fathers, I tend to see much more, you know, you can see the presence of these basic necessities. Obviously, origin backs away from that. But then we do see this petition as emphasizing the need for spiritual food and so, yes, the Eucharist and then, of course, meditation on the scriptures. The scriptures feed us. They allow us to receive Christ and in turn, uh, the precepts form us in the likeness of Christ. So we are asking also for those spiritual goods as well. Yeah, so I think they're both included. Father, thank you so much for your talk this morning. I have a question within a question, so if that's okay with you, I Sure. Uh, so just a follow up with Father um, Father Lee's question about the manna. Um, the manna is an anticipation of the promised land. Mm -hmm. So it's so God, um, it stopped raining manna when they reach the promised land. Is that also an indication in this petition that you are anticipating the real promised land, the heavenly Jerusalem? Mm -hmm. And what? would that mean for this bread that we're asking right here is the Eucharist. But what would that mean after we have reached the promised land? And then I have a second question. Um, you talk about um, the blessed are they who are hunger and thirst for righteousness and you connect it with um, the petition for bread. Augustine. And then Father also um, connect with blessed are those who mourn and connected with lamentation, asking for God's will. So would you also please expand on that? And um, has any of the church father, I bet there is, uh, connect the um, Beatitude and uh, our father, because there are um, similarities um, there. Um, I think for your first question, uh, in some ways, Augustine, answers that earlier, right? I mean, he says we still need to be nourished. Uh, but what we need to be nourished now, we will be need to be nourished in union with God. But he makes the switch from solid food to drink, uh, the way in which we receive that food that is Christ, uh, that is God's life, 
will change. I mean, he doesn't spell that out a lot more there, but he does says we need to continue to receive that gift. Um, the other question you brought up, Augustine actually correlates the entire Our Father with the Beatitudes. So he makes those connections throughout. And it's interesting, you can also see some of these connections, uh, though not f explicitly made, in Gregor Nice's uh, homilies on the Lord's Prayer, and then in turn his homilies on the Beatitudes. So this connection with, obviously the part there is, is that hunger, right? Uh, to hunger for that food that we are praying for in the Our Father, what that is, right? Uh, the basic necessities and so on, or the, uh, the, the life of Christ, the life of God in us. Uh, but I think what we see in Gregory Nyssa and then in Augustine is also it has even now kind of outpouring in this life, right? That that hunger uh, should also, as Gregory Nyssa shows us, be transformed into not only going, not going beyond what we need, but also looking toward the needs of others. In a way, when we are praying this, give us this day our daily bread, the us is there, right? Uh, we want us all to receive, whether that is the regular necessities or, above all, the spiritual good that is Christ. Uh, and then in turn, as Augustine makes that link there explicitly with the, uh, with the Beatitude, right, uh, that it should be correlated again with this desire or hunger for that which brings Christ or expresses Christ in our daily lives, that, uh, that justice uh, in the world. So I think, there's some, I think we can see in maybe both those fathers there. Yeah. Again, thank you for, for your talk. I have a question about Epiusion. So you've given us a lot of uh, food for thought about how the different fathers have to interpret it. But, you know, in Christian culture, oftentimes scripture will transform the meaning of the words that mm -hmm. we use and every, that everybody uses. So, for mm -hmm. instance, famously in English, the word talent mm -hmm. is taken on a new meaning in English as a result of its usage uh, in the King James Bible translation and others. So do you, is there any information or detail about how people might have used the word abusios after that, like in later Christianity, like the Byzantium, and would that say anything about the common interpretation of this passage in later Christianity? So, kind of use of epiusios, kind of yeah. regular speech or daily speech. Yeah, that would then reflect how people might interpret that. Interesting. I couldn't say too much about that, really. I mean, I think uh, obviously, I, I guess in Origin's own time, he says no one knows this word, right? Uh, and so, I mean, he in itself, the best he can do is kind of make, start making some connections uh, or break it down. He really does do that many uh, in that even that pereusios connection that Jerome makes. Clearly, it hasn't made the, the leap yet into common language. So, uh, you know, I think what we really see, of course, in the Latin speaking world is it's super substantial doesn't catch on. Uh, and, you know, and it just doesn't hit they, so they seem to put it into a context that people can grasp, obviously quotidianum. Uh, but in the Greek speaking world, I haven't done like thorough studies here where it goes into kind of later Byzantine. It doesn't seem to have, at least in what I've read, entered into kind of like common discourse for something, something else, like the example you give for talent. Yeah. Maybe we can change that, we can start using it. 
My question is on limiting desires to what is necessary. What is the discerning principle between that which is superfluous and that which is minimalist? Yeah, uh, we don't get, I mean, Gregory in the, in the homily will go on extensively about uh, the limiting of what you need in terms of food and clothing and shelter, uh, and in turn, you know, saying some things about, you know, don't go beyond that and seek, uh, especially kind of uses a lot of kind of uh, understandably uh, farming metaphors in there, like don't take more grain that you need and so on. Uh, but we don't get sort of, this is the line where, that you draw uh, where you kind of don't cross this. But again, the idea would be, what do you need for food, clothing, shelter, the basic things that you need for your work? Uh, how far, I mean, I think he would go probably in his own life was quite strict on himself, uh, how far he would expect others to go. Um, certainly he's trying to convey that to a wider audience. So I guess I guess the answer would be, I, can I say they had kind of a strict dividing line or list of things, not specifically, more kind of these general categories? Thank you for your talk, Father. It was excellent. Uh, my question is uh, the man's restoration has come up in the last presentation, and you mentioned it again in this presentation. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if you could say uh, something about how we're asking for that which restores us, but also how the prayer itself, praying the Our Father, leads to that restoration, and particularly uh, this petition, if there's a connection that either the Father's made or you have thoughts on Yeah, I think uh, what we see, because we, we move into the so-called we petitions here, you know, this where we're asking, give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our trespasses, right? And so uh, it becomes more specific. They're kind of turning ourselves over to God and receiving what God offers. And I think this has come up in a number of talks, but I would say what this petition especially emphasizes, but it, it's within the whole prayer, is uh, this growth in receptivity toward the divine gift. Uh, for all of these fathers, of course, deification uh, is not something that we can obtain by our own strength or will. And really, the fall, what happens in the fall, of course, is this is kind of turning inward. I'm going to do this, right? Uh, closing to the receptivity of the divine gift. And so within the prayer, when that is truly appropriated and formative, uh, yeah, I mean, we're asking for perhaps specific things here, but overall, uh, it is a restoration or a moving into the restoration of that state in which we may receive what God desires to give us. I think a good example of this would be, I mentioned at the beginning, many fathers of the church said that one could not pray this until after baptism, right? Uh, until you have fullness of divine adoption. There are exceptions to this. Augustine is one. Uh, Peter Chrysologus is one. Uh, and Augustine, in addressing catechumens, you know, just before they are going to be baptized, basically says, uh, because you are already kind of opened up to this, ready to receive the gift, uh, you can pray this and be formed by it even now. So uh, he's not obviously discounting baptism, but he is saying uh, that the prayer itself forms one for the receptivity 
that is required for uh, divine adoption. So I guess if I had to make kind of a general thing with all of them, it, it is that kind of formation in its simplicity and petitionary form. Yeah, that answer. Um, thank you for your talk. I was wondering if you could elaborate on how Origen stresses the unitive um, power of his petition, and if any of the other fathers pick up on that theme, um, and if, if they stress that in the temporal sense of you know the church as it exists on earth, mm -hmm. or if that's more uh, in like a heavenly spiritualized sense, um, and then if if it's if he places particular stress on this um, element of the lead petition as more unitive in some way than the others, you know, is there something particular about the petition mm -hmm. read that's more unitive than the, mm -hmm. you know, deliver us from the yeah, I guess the two examples I brought up for unity, I think what I would highlight would be Origen and Cyprian in this case. Now, in for Origen, the, the entire prayer is a formation in simplicity and unity, uh, specifically in the fragmentation of the person, right? Uh, the desire for material goods and pursuits, uh, that brings about fragmentation, uh, the redirection of the person toward God, the simplicity of God, uh, and the limiting of those things, therefore, unifies the person. In Cyprian, though, I think obviously we see the context is especially the unity of the church, right, and the divisions that have taken place there. And it, you can see it throughout the petition, uh, this desire for the union in the body of Christ, but I think he really, I would have to, yeah, he really hammers it home with this particular petition on the reception of the bread and praying for the bread in its Eucharistic context. Uh, that's where he really wants to bring it home. But again, even for him, the entire prayer, the fact that we say our father immediately open, uh, begins with this unity uh, and, you know, they all bring that out. We, we don't say my father, we say our father. And therefore, the prayer itself is always one that forms us in that unity in the body of Christ. Uh, they, they may have different emphasis, emphases on that, but they all bring that home. Thanks, Father.